Hello, and welcome to this episode of Bookable Space. I'm your host, Yvonne Battlefelton, and today we're joined by Anara Gard. Anara will be reading to us from and talking about her book, Like a Complete Unknown. Anara, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Yvonne. Anytime. So we're just going to jump right in. And can you please tell us a bit about Like a Complete Unknown? Sure. This novel is set in Chicago, where I grew up. In 1969 and 1970, which was a very volatile time, not unlike the times of a few years ago when I was writing it, a time of protests in the street and an unpopular president and severe limitations on women's reproductive rights. So I tried to recapture the Chicago that I had grown up in and remembered that doesn't completely exist anymore. And it's full of musical references. Every chapter has a musical reference that for readers of a certain age, it will evoke memories. And if you don't have those memories, it will still give you a little hint as to what that chapter is about. And it mostly has the points of view of the two central characters, Katja Warszawski, who is a Polish-American teenager who longs to be an artist and Dr. Robert Lewis, who is a widowed physician nearing the end of his career. And the way their lives cross sends them both in new directions. And could we have our first reading, please? Sure. I'll read a little from chapter one. The musical reference of that is, people everywhere just want to be free. After her brother left for college, the lopsided square that her family made around the kitchen table had formed a new shape, like a knife with a sharp point. Katja missed Piotr's cheerful, gangly presence, how he winked at her when he upended the orange juice to drink straight from the carton, her eyes clouded with tears at the memory. Ma set down her glass of hot tea with a thump. Tonight, you come to me, you come with me to work, daughter. Is time you learn the real world. But Ma, you work all night. I have a test tomorrow. How will I stay awake? Tomorrow's history quiz already promised to be a maze from which she'd have trouble emerging. Obey your mother, Tata growled. Katja's arms and legs grew heavy with dread. And Ma looked away as she said, fetch a scarf. The van comes soon. Mr. Wojcik's battered blue van was crowded with women who welcomed Katja with toothy smiles, mothers of neighborhood girls she'd grown up with. They patted her cheeks and continued chattering in Polish. Katja stared out the window at distant office towers glittering against the dark sky, each window a tiny white rectangle. She'd never been downtown at night before, and despite herself, she was excited. Mr. Wojcik let the cleaning crew out beside a tall building. As the elevator rose, her stomach dropped and the others laughed. You get used to it, someone said. She shook her head, trying to clear her ears. We clean 19 to 9 tonight, 10 floors, Mrs. Slezak said. Katja counted on her fingers. Isn't that 11 floors? She's a smart one. It didn't sound like a compliment. Mrs. Slezak leaned close to her, saying, What you don't know, Katja Warszawski, there is no 13, is bad luck. 
Katja mopped floors with an acrid smelling brew. In a tiny kitchen, she rinsed a big coffee urn. She was shown how to vacuum carpets and how to clear the sink drains, but not your first night, the older women said, waving her away from the bathrooms, and she didn't argue, grateful for the favor. As they worked their way down, floor by floor, her view of the city shrank a little more until all she could see were the lit windows in the buildings across the street. Was another girl like her over there, pushing her trash can from room to room, tired and miserable? They finished the last office at 2 a.m. Her shoulders ached from pushing the heavy vacuum cleaner, her ears still hummed from its roar. But she heard her mother say, You did good, Katja. Tomorrow night will go easier. Tomorrow? Next week, you'll be 16 years. No more school. Now they have to let you out. Panic sparked in Katja's chest. But I don't want to drop out. I want to finish and go to art school. The room was too hot, her voice too loud. Make pretty pictures at home, her mother remarked evenly. Ma, please. You help the family now. No more talking. Stunned, Katja followed her mother into the elevator and slumped against the wall, watching the numbers blink on and off. Mrs. Slezak was right. There was no 13. If only she could find that missing floor, a space between the numbers where she could escape. But then what? Where could she go? Outside, the women lit cigarettes and chatted together as they waited for the van. Katja sank to the chilly curb and picked at a bit of paper towel stuck to her shoe. Hopelessness stabbed her like a stitch in her side from running. But there was no point in protesting or complaining. Her misery would find little sympathy here. Then faint sounds of music and voices drifted toward her from out of the shadows, almost as though they'd stepped through some invisible doorway, came a shaggy-haired boy in blue jeans and another with a huge round afro. They sauntered down the middle of the empty street, beside them a girl whose bare legs scissored beneath her short skirt. As they passed below the street lamp, light glinted on the girl's silver earrings and danced upon the shiny surface of a guitar. They looked like angels in a Renaissance painting. Katja scrambled to her feet and teetered at the edge of the curb, holding her breath. If only they would come all the way over to her. If they crossed the street and reached her, something magical would happen. A spell would be broken. She yanked the kerchief from her hair and waved it wildly. The taller fellow beckoned to her. He cupped his hands around his mouth and called, Come along, while his friends grinned and began to sing, The times they are a-changing. Katja stepped off the curb. Wow. So where did the idea for the book come from? I think it started with the thought that I didn't like how the 60s were being portrayed. They seemed to become increasingly Disneyified. that it was all versions of the movie Woodstock or flower children dancing on the field of Golden Gate Park. And really, the um, when you look back at photos of the protests in the 60s, there were people of all ages, and there were nuns and priests and the parents of boys who were drafted and sent off to the war or who feared their boys would be drafted. It was middle-class people and it was working-class people. And 
if it had only been a youth movement, it couldn't have succeeded. So I wanted to bring a different view. And so I was interested in the character of Robert and how he might view that time, even though the young people might seem very foreign to him and strange. I liked the idea of a person appearing in your life who's a catalyst for change and who doesn't intend to be. They don't, that's not their intention. They just show up and they spark this change because I've had that happen to me. And I think a lot of people have had that happen to them. So I was interested in writing about that. Oh, that's lovely. And I like that, like the idea of you saying, well, I don't like the, the portrayal that other people are, you know, are, are using for it. And so I'm going to change that. I'm going to do something about it. Because so many times we either, we say we don't like something and we know we might complain about it, but it's, it's something different to say, well, I'm going to do something about it. And here's what I can do. I can write what I want to see of the 60s. So I think that's really cool. And I must say, I, I regarded the 60s in a pretty starry eyed way because I'm a little younger than Katja is in this novel, but I had a, an older sister. And so I would look at her and her boyfriends, particularly, you know, with this admiration. And so I could bring a little bit of that into Katja as well. Oh, wonderful. Could we have another reading, please? Sure. So the next little bit will introduce you to Robert from chapter nine. Don't let the stars get in your eyes. The office blinds clattered as Robert raised them halfway disturbing a fine layer of soot that had sifted through the window's gaps. He pulled a fresh length of white paper over the exam table and placed a clean gown where it would be convenient for his first patient. Little else to do other than to tug on the white coat that he could no longer button across his belly, plug in the hot plate, and drop two lumps of sugar into his sanka. He had readied the women's bureau for the day ahead. His chair creaked as he settled, cup in hand, to review the date book. The slimness of his schedule wasn't unusual. Most patients didn't bother making appointments anymore. They found the women's bureau in the phone book and just showed up, as if they knew he wouldn't be too busy to see them, and he never was. Not like the old days, when brides came in shortly after their honeymoons. My husband they would boast, waving their left hands to be sure he noticed their small diamonds winking in the light. Robert counseled patience. Don't rush. Give time to this new partnership. Let your marriage grow, he would say. But the new wives all wanted to get pregnant right away, as if their happiness could be snatched away if they didn't somehow cement it. Perhaps this rush was a legacy from their own mothers, War brides who had romanced and married in weeks, sometimes days. Robert had enjoyed delivering babies back then. Now he referred mothers-to-be to Chicago's lying-in hospital. He told himself his fingers were too unsteady to handle forceps or to perform an episiotomy. In truth, though, it was his wife Phyllis's death that had hollowed him out, and every birth cracked him open anew. It was the joy that did him in, that radiant happiness of new mothers and fathers, how tenderly they held their infants, and the baby's fawn soft skin, toes like seed pearls, their gauzy, unfocused eyes. Unable to abide such happiness in the midst of his grief, he had surrendered his hospital privileges. 
Doctor, Mrs. Watkins poked her gray head around his doorframe. Miss Patterson is here. Thank you. Please send her in. He stood and offered his hand to the identically dressed girls who flounced into his office. How often a young woman brought along a companion dressed in the same outfit. Some kind of protection must be assumed by appearing to have a twin, some strength in knowing that you were doubled. The pair before him now sported tight blonde ringlets, aqua binny skirts as bright as a neon sign, and thick black lashes that were surely artificial. I'm Nat. This is my friend Sharon, one girl tittered, jerking her head at her double. Your best friend, Sharon said. She snapped her chewing gum and stared at the posters of the reproductive system on his walls. I need some birth control, Natalie announced. Sharon giggled. Today's young women usually blurted out their burning question. Can I have the pill? Did my lousy boyfriend give me the clap? Are you going to tell anyone I was here? He motioned for them to sit down. Let's have a chat first. Are you sexually active? His standard question. By which I mean, do you have intercourse? Yeah, but only one time. Robert waited. Well, maybe twice. I'll need to examine you before providing you with contraception. Of course, she would want the pill. They all did these days. Nothing that would require any planning ahead, any commitment. But we must run a test to determine that you're not pregnant first. In this single regard, his Women's Bureau was up to date, even ahead of other clinics, for he proudly offered the Wampole's two-hour test, which could accurately detect pregnancy only four days after a missed period. He directed Natalie to the restroom to provide a urine sample. Down the hall, past the elevators. No, her friend must stay behind. After Natalie returned and handed over the warm cup, he checked her blood pressure. When he released the bulb valve and the air sighed out of the pressure cuff, he felt himself deflate as well, unwilling to spend one more minute in the company of these chatterboxes. In the silence after they departed, Robert berated himself for his sense of relief, and he wondered, not for the first time, whether it was time for him to retire. But then, as always, he pictured his empty house and his evenings spent in front of the black and white TV that brought the endless war scorched and incandescent into his unsettled dreams. And the same unanswered questions nagged at him. Where would he go each day? What else could he possibly do? You know, it strikes me as, so the book is set in Chicago, and you said you, you grew up there, and you so I'm really curious about that writing kind of home, and, or what that was like for you writing about the Chicago you knew and if there was any research you had to do and kind of where could you imagine or explore or reinvent Chicago? Sure. I still go back and visit pretty often. My family still lives there. But when I go back, I get this double vision because I'm seeing what used to be there and what's there now, you know, so I'll be going down the street saying that should be a shoe store, not a Verizon store or the YMCA is gone, whatever. And then there are some neighborhoods that I deliberately chose not to go back to because I knew they had changed so utterly. And I didn't want my memories to get erased with the new. 
So I was a little careful about what I exposed myself to. But then there's other parts that are very much the same, you know, riding the elevated train and you come around this curve and that same building is there and go, oh, yeah, I went to that concert there or whatever. And I did do some research. There's a, a site called Forgotten Chicago that has lots of photos. And that was really helpful, as well as a Facebook group where I could pose some questions of, um, hey, does anybody remember this or that? I would check some of the slang and some of the memories with some folks who were a little bit older than I was to say, okay, did I did I get that right? Especially with some men around the draft and the draft issues, since I didn't personally experience that, I wanted to make sure that it it rang true for them. Oh, I think that's really great. And then especially that idea of having it ring true for certain readers. I'm also always really curious about, was there anything in your research that you found out that was really interesting to you, but you couldn't use it in the book? Ooh, good question. There was, yeah, there, there had been just before the time period that I'm writing about a terrible um, a raid by the Chicago police on an apartment where some Black Panthers lived. And they were pretty much just shot in their beds as they slept by the police. It was, you know, a massacre and, and very significant in, in that time and outraged a lot of people. But I chose not to include that because it, it felt to me like it was too many steps removed from my own experience. I didn't know anybody I could turn to and it would have required me to learn so much about the Panthers and what they were doing. I think I have one reference so that I acknowledge that the Black Panthers were a presence in terms of running a clinic, a free clinic, because I wanted to acknowledge that they were doing things for the community. You know, they weren't just trying to overthrow the government like some people think, but I just didn't feel like I could render the deaths of Mark Clark and the others whose names are escaping me right at this moment with accuracy or with true heart. So I had to put that aside, even though it felt like, geez, race is a big issue in Chicago and that I couldn't tackle it that to the degree that it deserved. Could we have our final reading, please? Sure. Thank you. Thank you. So here's a bit from chapter 13. Don't know why you say goodbye when they finally meet and Katja is going to give herself a fake name. So Robert has just arrived back from lunch into his office. Mrs. Watkins says, we had a walk-in. I've put her in your office. But why? There were three unoccupied chairs in the waiting room. She's not suitable. I didn't trust her alone in the exam room, and I, I didn't want her hanging around out here. Mrs. Watkins pressed her lips together as she handed him a patient index card. Clearly, she wasn't going to say more. Curious, he entered his office to take a look. A girl sat cross-legged on the floor, giving him a clear view of her bare feet, blackened with grime. Her face was shielded as she bent over something in her lap, while Phyllis's portrait lay before her, staring up at the ceiling. Good afternoon, Robert grumbled. The girl raised her head, showing him a young, serious face. Bedraggled peacock feathers dangled from her ears. With high cheekbones and deep-set eyes, she resembled a pixie, 
except for the crooked scar on her chin, a wound that hadn't been properly sutured. A quick glance at her card, Miss Kathy Jones, claimed to be 18, but surely she couldn't be more than 16 years old. Mrs. Watkins had added a black X in one corner, some kind of demerit for those dirty bare feet. I'm Dr. Lewis, won't you sit down? He pointedly nudged the chair close to her. She rose and perched rigidly at the edge of her seat, clutching a sketch pad close to her body. Robert leaned against his desk and composed his face to be neutral, non-judgmental. What brings you here today? Miss Jones slowly surveyed his office, taking in the wall posters and anatomical models. This is the woman's bureau? The whole thing? Her voice was low, but he caught the error. Yes, the women's bureau, he corrected, unable to help himself. I, I thought it might be all women here. Just me, he said, spreading his empty hands. He tried to smile. And Mrs. Watkins, of course. The girl frowned, rubbing the scar on her chin. Even her feather earrings fluttered like they wanted to leave the room. Her pad of paper slipped from her lap and landed on the floor. Robert reached to retrieve it and caught his breath in surprise. It was a crayon portrait of his wife, copied from the black and white photo. But now that beloved face glowed with life. Her cheeks were a healthy pink, her hair restored to a rich brown, and her eyes the exact shade of sea green that he remembered so well. How had the girl known to get that right? The nose wasn't perfect, and Phyllis herself might not have appreciated how wide her mouth had become. But Kathy Jones had somehow managed to revive the essence of his late wife. It's lovely. You're very talented. She ducked her head and blushed at the compliment. Well, I like to make things more colorful, happier, you know. For the first time, he caught a hint of an accent. Not German, Eastern European. Are you an art student? No, she blurted, then clamped her lips together. She'd said too much. Then she said, I, I want to ask a question. Be my guest. She pointed to the photograph of Phyllis. She's dead, right? Wait, that's not my question. What I want to know is, when did she die? His answer was very soft. Almost eight years ago. To his surprise, her face brightened. Okay, then. That's good. Because after seven years, all the cells in your body die and get replaced by new ones. So, in a way, you're not even the same person and you don't have to be sad anymore. He hid a smile behind his hand. What an odd girl, telling him, a man of medicine, how the human body worked. Her theory wasn't correct, of course, but it was a generous thought and a genuine attempt to release him from his grief. She wrestled her sketch pad out of her satchel and placed it on his desk. Carefully, she removed the portrait and handed it to him. Here, you can keep it. Speechless, he held the paper by the edges. Phyllis smiling up at him as he tried to compose himself. Thank you. This is wonderful. But the artist must sign her work before going into the exam room. She beamed. Nobody ever asked me before. Robert unscrewed the cap from his best fountain pen. She bent over the portrait, taking her task seriously. 
The first stroke formed a straight line, and she paused as if she'd made a mistake. He opened his appointment book to pretend he hadn't noticed, listening to the pen scratching furiously for a minute. Okay, catch you later, she slipped from the room. Her signature had been partly crossed out and amended, a crooked C to match the white line on her chin. Robert waited to hear her call that she had changed into a gown and was ready for him to enter the exam room. But instead, the elevator signal rang, and he knew that Kathy Jones had fled. Wow. So where can we buy Like a Complete Unknown? Well, thank you. It's certainly available at bookshop.org here in the U.S., and I know that it has sold to UK customers as well. You can either order it through your local bookshop, and it's also available as an ebook in Kindle and all those other forms that you can get Apple, etc., Kobo, all of those. Wonderful. Thank you so much for being my guest, for reading to us, and for giving us insight into the book. It was such a treat. Thank you. I was so happy to share it with you. I discover something new every time that I read it out loud. Sometimes it's, oh, I wish I had changed that one little word. But as I work on my second novel, it's nice to go back and revisit this one. And I really appreciate the invitation, Yvonne. Oh, it's my pleasure. And maybe you'll come back and read from the second one as well. You bet. (laughs) 